0: psychology and anger nerds. Welcome to a special crossover episode of psychology and stuff and all the rage two podcasts out of Phoenix studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, psychologist and anger researcher and host and I'm really excited about our guest today. She gave a TEDx talk here at UW Green Bay about a year ago and is here to talk about that talk. First though, I wanna encourage you to go listen to a new Phoenix Studios podcast that has gone live just recently. Cannonball is a new show where Chuck Ryback and I talk about those great works that are considered or should be considered part of the canon. We bring in the experts to talk about film, literature, music, Broadway hits, and even video games. Our first episode went live a few weeks ago and we talked with Brian Carr about Super Mario Brothers as a canonical video game. You can find Cannonball, and that's canon with only one N. Uh, wherever you find podcasts. So let's get to this episode. Dr. Jenny Young is the director of the Writing Center at UW-Green Bay. She's an English professor who, before coming to UW-Green Bay, had a career teaching high school, and she talks about some of her experiences in high school in her TEDx talk, Stupid School Security and Discipline Problems. Welcome, Dr. Jenny Young. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me on.
0: You bet. I'm so happy to do this, partially because it was fun for me to revisit the talk uh, just about thirty minutes ago, as I was kind of rewatching things. Um, so first, I want to say I love the name. I'd kind of forgotten that part, but it.
1: it well, the the stupid school yeah, that yeah. wasn't mine. I I don't oh, know really? where that. I was surprised to see that when it came okay. up on YouTube, but I'm okay with it. I don't remember what I had it titled originally. It wasn't huh. that, but.
0: Interesting. But it's
1: um, it's concise. Yes. <laughs> and it's well, descriptive. Yep. So. And
0: it, and it, it's like you know you came out swinging right. yeah <laughs> exactly letting right let people know right. here we go yeah yeah um good yeah. that's interesting right out of the the gate i'm um it just the, not, that you didn't put that down. Yeah, um, no, yeah.
1: I, I didn't. I agree with it, but yeah, yes. it was a, wasn't the original. <laughs>
0: well, you know, I told you this at the time, uh, but I loved this talk, right? Well, um, I, I I rewatched it again this morning and loved it all over again. In fact, I'm a little mad because it made me tear up a little at the end, and <laughs> I try to maintain a steely exterior, and so <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little troubled by that. But I want to start... Be- I'm kind of just going to go through some things and ask questions, if that's okay. But I want sure. to start with the rules and the ID tag that you start with in the talk. And right. by, I should tell listeners, too, at some point, you should listen to it. Either stop right now and go find it, or at the end, go watch it. Um, I'm going to post it with the show notes for the episode so people can find it easily. But um, but So that said, I don't think it'll benefit you to watch it now. You can watch it later. Either way, but let's start with the ID tag, because I think... This was a really interesting and funny example that you kicked things off with,
1: yeah. So I had never been in a school that required students to wear ID tags. i it It kind of reminded me, do you remember in elementary school when your teacher would have you make the little name card and put it on your desk? right? right. and And that was to help the teacher learn your name for maybe a week, right, right? and then <laughs> right. and then that part was over. So, this this school had these id tags on lanyards that all the students had to wear which struck me as odd and a little unnecessary because as the teacher i can't see them anyway so i right. mean i can't read the name tags from the front of the classroom so it's not helping me learn anybody's names so immediately i'm questioning what is what is the purpose of these things and i honestly i'm i'm still, still not don't know yeah i still don't know <laughs> but I guess what shocked me about it was how very, very serious this name tag situation was. And it was used for, I mean, everything from pulling kids out of the hall and giving them detentions to there was a lot of yelling at lunch about the name tag situation because the students would either not have their name tags on or, as I mentioned in the talk, they would find various crazy things to do with them, like whip them around at each right. other, or they had one student who ate his, and I talked about that <laughs> in, in the TEDx talk, like actually ingested the entire name tag. And there were so many rules that applied just to this name tag. It sort of, for me as a new teacher there, started the whole year off on a very bizarre tone that would become emblematic of an entire culture that I found not only bizarre, but disturbing. Right, because it's prison-like, right? right. To, yeah. I, I mean, I detect that it yeah. comes out of prison culture, and we're and we're, you know, doing this well, in the high school. I taught it.
0: And, and what really struck me as interesting about it too is it it felt like something that I watch. I actually think about this sometimes in, kind of, uh, political or leadership context, where mm-hmm. where people, when when things start to get out of hand, quote unquote, mm-hmm. people decide to crack down with like what I would call well, this is not the right term, but excessive force. It's like, yes. this is the thing we're going to do to fix this is have more rules. And, exactly. You know, and my experience has been that the more you do that, the longer you continue the problem. That right. that, that it just doesn't, it doesn't just go away. Uh, you know, because you cracked down, it exacerbates right. things.
1: And it introduces new problems right. that didn't even exist prior to the rules. And And to be fair... There were problems in, mm-hmm. in the school. I mean, right. there were a lot of students with behavioral problems who, um, you know, had spent some amount of time in criminal justice system, mm-hmm. either juvenile or in some cases as adults, because um, we did have students who were on that kind of eighteen to you know twenty one border, where they were still in high school but but legally adults, um, and yeah, the the rules themselves were exerting a force. Uh, that was antagonistic and, I mean, anger-inducing in in terms of keeping in in the theme of the podcast that that just not only weren't necessary, but added fuel to, you know, a pretty big fire.
0: Right, right. Well, and that's just, and I think there's, that's one of the reasons why I'm touched by the talk is because I think, so I, I had experiences working with kids similar to the ones you're describing, mm-hmm. and uh, who had, you know, I, I worked at a shelter in, in adolescence, or, or for adolescence, um, when I was in college. And so we had a lot of kids who were probably in a similar mm-hmm. sort of situation where, you know, in many cases, life had been very, very difficult for them. And um, they struggled academically. They struggled, um, you know, because of, of family-related stuff. And um, so I've seen a lot of kids that that are in a similar boat, and I've watched them kind of be sort of burdened by a system mm-hmm. that really just punishes them in some ways unnecessarily right. over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was I thought that was really really interesting, but I also I, I want to talk. T- because I want, your conclusion is so fascinating. One of the reasons I love this talk is it does everything that I think like a, a great TED talk does, which is it takes this idea and just sort of flips it for people in mm-hmm. a really important way. And I want to get there, but I want to first talk about this. You you deliver a line that I guess I would consider one of the, the more important lines in there. You say, language is more powerful than discipline. And to me, that feels sort of like you're the central premise here. Mm-hmm. That, um, talk about that, what you mean by that.
1: Okay. so. First, let's talk about discipline because that has different meanings, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it can mean in one sense to punish, mm-hmm. but the root of the word is, is actually about teaching. You know, It mm-hmm. comes out of disciple, right? Okay. So we've, we've kind of warped that, that word in itself. Um, in, in terms of language being more powerful, so when you have a group of students who tend to be, um, as a whole, maybe a little bit fractious, a little bit angry, a, a little mm-hmm. bit defeated... In, in many ways, by the time they get to me, because we're talking about, you know, 16 to 18 year olds for right. the most part. They've had a lot of experiences by that right. age and a lot, a lot of bad experience in, in this case. So in, in order to maintain order, to control the classroom, I saw teachers go about this in, in various ways. One way is to meet students with the same level of anger and sort of combativeness that they already have, but even more so, so that you win. Right. So that, that's one option. And, and that works in the short term. And, and there were some teachers at that school that were sort of the, like, I'm a big guy, drill sergeant type. I'm going to rule by fear Mm -hmm. and you can maintain order in a classroom that way for the most part. Um, In the short term. Right. Okay, so I, this is a podcast, I am a female who doesn't weigh enough to legally donate blood. So, like, I can't scare any, there's nothing physically imposing about me. I can't scare anybody into acting, right? And so I realized very early on, I've got to find a way to not only get through the day, but actually affect change in a way that students will take with them, when they leave the classroom. And the only thing I've ever been any good at is language, putting words together, thinking about how words work, looking mm-hmm. at the effects that words have, um, selecting words and word combinations to achieve uh, you know, different goals for different situations. And so I realized like, that's my key. That's really all I have. I've got to figure out how to make language work to connect to these kids mm-hmm. in a way that maintains you know, an environment in which people can learn but also that helps them on their path toward becoming whole human beings
0: right and you talk about primary metaphors and and use some great examples the you know love is magic and things like that um i really i guess first maybe define for people what a primary metaphor is
1: okay so a primary metaphor is a deep level metaphor that structures our behavior without our knowledge so a literary metaphor would be for me to say um, he's a real bear in the morning, or mm-hmm. comparing you know a man to a cranky bear, and we all understand that's a metaphor. But like if I came in and said, "Hey Ryan, how are things today?" and you said things are looking up, I don't need. I'm not going to look up at your ceiling to see what mm-hmm. you're looking at, right? I understand mm-hmm. intuitively that that means things are good. Mm-hmm. And that is a primary metaf- metaphor. In our culture, up is good is a primary metaphor. Okay. And, and we use it the other way too. You know, We say, I'm feeling down today. So right. we associate up is good, down right. is bad. Right. Um, so that's a primary metaphor. And there are, sure. they, they're so um, entwined with how we exist and how we communicate that we can't really extract them from our lives and even function. Right. So we change everything.
0: Interesting. So I, I wrote about this years ago. I wrote about something years ago. And I, I don't know. How, I, I wrote about our use of of like kind of war terminology for combat terminology mm-hmm. for political campaigns right. as a metaphor. And I, I don't know if this meets the craze. This is a primary mm-hmm. metaphor or something. But the, this notion that we use all of this language like going on the attack, going on or being defensive, even the word campaign right. is, a, yeah. is a military term. Does that feel close yeah that
1: that is a primary metaphor it's the same way there's another one that says um so you're saying like politics is war that would be the primary metaphor there's one that says um um, theories are buildings theories are buildings so we talk about the foundation of the theory what's supporting this theory where are the weak points in this theory so Gotcha. Yeah, they're all over the place. Okay, but yours definitely qualifies. Well, yes, good. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um,
0: so, so let's talk because you you argue in the in the talk that at least one of, or maybe the, primary metaphor for high school is prison. Right. So give some examples of that or kind of share some of that.
1: Yeah. And and I want to be clear, like I'm certainly not the first person to make, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's become common to talk about the school to prison pipeline. Like this is a well-established problem. Um, I was looking on a more, I guess, granular level at the language. So I was analyzing um, high school handbooks and looking at all the sort of in and out language. Like you sign in, you can get early release. There was a lot of talk about who was allowed to be in spaces, who wasn't allowed to be in spaces. And the, the deeper you read, the more there's this notion of containment. And, and in a lot of cases containment, both containment by force and mm-hmm. exclusion by force. So like we're keeping these students in this building, whether they want to be here or not, and we're locking the whole place down to keep other forces out, which we're never clear about. We couch it in the language of like keeping our children safe from intruders but mm-hmm. we all know that the intruders are always already kids inside the school. This has been true almost without exception in every right. instance of school violence. So it's sort of a farce that we're acting like this is a um, you know we just care so much about the children we right. want to lock everything down to protect them. When the reality is that we're afraid of the children themselves, right. <laughs> and that's what we need right. to be honest about. And then we need to be honest about the cultures and environments that are creating a situation in which we are afraid of the children. Right. So
0: so what did you and I actually just want to took a picture of the uh some of the data from your because you talk about the different language in yeah there any about informative language versus guiding language versus warning and punitive language do you right. remember that should i
1: should yeah I? no i think i can remember it it's like a jump of 1600 percent or something yeah right? well, okay
0: it, it's yes
1: so if we look at if we look at the language, and again, I'm looking at these school handbooks, if we look at the, lang- the amount of language we use to sort of guide students on a positive path, which might sound um, something like, you know, there are many activities in the school mm-hmm. in which you can be involved, in. here are some of them. Or if you run into trouble and you're struggling, here are some resources you could seek out for help. So that would be sort of like guiding helpful language. And then I compared that to language that sounded like, if you do this, then this will happen to you, or don't do this. And the jump from the former to the latter, it was like 1,600%, right? Yeah. So we're starting – we're like setting up this us-against-them scenario that's right. – delivered through language that I think is Just making everything much harder and more combative than it needs to be.
0: Yeah, because and so I have the numbers here You said that informative language. You said it was 43% guiding language was 2% percent, And then warning and punitive language was 54% Yeah, so essentially you're you're right. Just this huge huge jump, right? Um. and, and I wonder What are your thoughts on how How did that happen? Like, I mean, is it what, why is it written that way?
1: This was the most fascinating part of the book for me because for the research for the book. So I assumed that somebody at some point wanted this, wanted Mm -hmm. things to be the way they are and that it just sort of snowballed. But I talked to a lot of administrators and teachers and school board members and parents, and they all said, yeah, we don't, we didn't mean for it to get like this. This was, this was never the intention. Like we don't even really care that much what the kids wear because mm-hmm. dress codes become a big part of this. Right. Like, and I look at sort of embodiment theories and how people's bodies, you know, both reflect and create the, the, you know, different aspects of the cultures in which they reside. Mm-hmm. But um I think it kind of happened by default, and I, I use that term "discourse of default." We created this disc, this sort of combative, angry discourse that ran away from us, and these these things just kind of get revised and added onto over the years in a way that's not thoughtful. Like I even in one school handbook that was issued in it must have been like twenty. 11, somewhere between 2011 and, and 2014, talking about kids playing cassette tapes at lunch. They don't know what cassette tapes. Right. They're not playing cassette tapes <laughs> at lunch. So, like, a lot of it—it's an right. editing problem. Like, somebody needs to really look at these. And I also yep. looked at the length. Like, a a typical school handbook twenty years ago was like four pages long, and now they're you know one hundred and sixty pages on right. average or something. There's
0: there's probably we could probably talk about this in terms of syllabi um, yeah, here as we, well. We right? definitely right? could. That, yes, that, like, different how, uh, podcasts. Uh, yeah. Yes, how much of the language? <laughs> right. Is, is punitive versus yeah, guiding? Into, right. That's, yeah. Um, so I, you know what I, I meant to ask this earlier. You you mentioned the book in the talk, but you don't give the title. Um, what is the What is the book you wrote?
1: What is the title of the book? Um, Rhetoric, embodiment, and the ethos of surveillance: Student bodies in the American high school. Nice. Okay. It's Kind of a lot, but <laughs> but w- what I'm looking at is all the stuff you and I have been talking about through right. kind of. A lens of how does this also impact so, student bodies?
0: So I'm curious, and this is this might be off topic, um, but if so much of so many of the rules are about dress code, yeah, how how did that happen? I mean, when did we decide that this was this was the thing we were going to get fixated yeah. on? Um, i
1: I would probably want to do more research before okay. saying this definitively, but but from the research I have done, I would say the Columbine shooting. That's really? when the phrase trench coat mafia really yes. got picked up because the two shooters in, in the Columbine shooting happened to be wearing trench coats. And then we sort of, I don't know, ex- extrapolated that out to all kinds of, you know, like any kid who wears dark colors every day must right. be, you know, either depressed or isolated or, you know, filled with, with some sort of uh, mental condition that could be dangerous to others. And, and then... And then things that we associated with that, I talk a lot in the book about disease culture, like Mm -hmm. our fear of, you know, uh uh-oh, Brittany's friend got her nose pierced, and now Brittany's going to get her nose pierced, and then all these other things are going to happen that really don't make any sense. Like, to me, arguing with a high schooler about the clothes they wear or their hair is the absolute biggest waste of time on <laughs> earth. I mean, nothing is more temporary
0: right. than a
1: high schooler's hairdo, right? right? But in these handbooks, we talk about hairstyles that um, could pose a threat to others. Like that what language that is mean? in there. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> unless you, you know, are shooting darts out of your head, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, that is wild. But I mean, it must mean just the contagiousness of a hair. style i guess or that it
1: might be like mentally disturbing or or, i mean the word distracting i'm making air quotes here distracting (laughs) is thrown a lot about but that's not even legitimate either because you know what if a kid has a facial deformity we don't care about distraction in that case we're perfectly fine with it so it's not really distraction that we're worried about
0: and we use the term distraction Yes, I mean, I, I think we we oftentimes seem to use it in reference to women or girls. Oh, oh uh, in, yeah, in more than dress. anything, it's yeah.
1: distracting for the boys, right? Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I um just a, so when I was young, it's funny to reflect on this now. My brother. Um, he was a soccer player, he was captain of the team his senior year, and he told everyone if we beat, I think the the deal was, he told his team, if we beat a top five ranked team in the state, I'll get a mohawk.
1: Okay. Now,
0: keep in mind, this is almost 40 years ago, you right. know, or 35 <laughs> years ago, so that may have been a bigger deal yeah. at the time. But um, they did it, my parents went out of town, my grandmother <laughs> gave him a mohawk, <laughs> which is awesome. my favorite That's part of the That's awesome, story. yeah. But, my grandmother's son, otherwise known as my father, was not thrilled <laughs> <laughs> to come home to this. And it, I remember it being this like really big deal, you know, I bet, and yeah. people were people were really mad. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think in some ways I'm just sort of reflecting on it is part of this because thinking back to to the stuff with the ID tag and so much of this is, is simply just about controlling right. kids or controlling people and that that being a thing we do when we're scared
1: right. is that we
0: try and control our surroundings. We try and control the people we care about and so on.
1: right?
0: And how often that is misguided. Right. Um, and I can say this as a parent who oftentimes finds himself to be too controlling. Right. right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Me um,
1: too. As a parent. I, yeah. Exact same thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I, I will confess that one day I, my son, you can see him react to our uh, attempts to control him. You know, mm-hmm. that he doesn't yeah. like it. And of right. course he doesn't. No one right, does.
1: nobody likes yeah. it. Yeah. And, who is, and so right.
0: you see him, I think, sometimes sit, tell us things like, yes, I brushed my teeth when I know for sure he didn't. Yeah. But it's also <laughs> a, he's just sick of us asking. You right. know, he's sick of us yeah. making a big deal out of this. And, um, and so I've actually, I, I remember one time saying to him, I know, I'm, I know I can be too controlling. And if it ever feels that way, just say, Dad, you're being too controlling. I'll mm-hmm. listen to you. And I said, should we practice? And he said, yes. I said, this is an embarrassing moment for me. But, and he said, "He said yes. And I said, OK, go for it. And he said, Dad, you're being too demanding. And in my gut, I thought to myself, OK, you're supposed to say controlling, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to let it go. Uh, yeah. so,
1: <laughs> you so, illustrated for yourself, yeah. the problem. yeah. So,
0: but no, but it is like there's so much about this, and this is a a, a, a reaction to to um, to fear that we have it that is, human beings yeah. have, and so in some ways, it, I guess I don't know if it helps at all as I re, as I frame all of this to know that this oftentimes might be coming from a good place.
1: It, I think it is. Yeah. I, I I really do. But, I, don't, I mean, nobody wanted to create antagonistic situation. Right.
0: Especially yeah. not, I mean, w- you know, we're talking about teachers mm-hmm. who I think by and large we know get into this field because they care about learning right. and children and they right. want to help. And so I don't think that that the goal is to create that. But I, back to the, the place that I, I worked, the, that shelter, mm-hmm. I, I when I reflect back on who like, kind of how I worked with kids and how we worked with kids, I'm Mm -hmm. sometimes, like, embarrassed and disappointed because I I see so much of what you're describing in kind of how we
1: dealt with things. no, and I would say the same thing about myself. I mean, yeah, I have days I look back on, and I think, yeah, that was not not a fine moment. (laughs) Why did I care about that? (laughs) Right, right, yeah. yeah. And the Um, answer is you didn't. You, You cared about something else, and we default to rule systems... To solve problems that they were never intended to solve, I think.
0: So I want to get, because you one of the things I again I love about your talk is that you have a solution built in,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing here, but you talk about radically reimagining the American high school that in that we change the metaphor that structures it. Mm-hmm. Tell us, uh, tell the listeners, I guess, about the alternative that you pitch in the talk.
1: Okay, so. One way that this kind of research can be applied to real life, because it's very theoretical and abstract, but there is a real life application. And the real life application is that you take a problematic scenario. So in this case, the American high school, and you look at the metaphors that are governing it. So in this case, prison. And you ask yourself, what other metaphor could be better? Like, how, how could we write rules that are in accordance with a, a different metaphor? And the one I use in the talk is a, um, a garden. Like, what if school were a garden instead of a prison? And then I talk about the fact that you can't have walls and ceilings in a garden or all the plants will die. They actually need sunlight and rain and all you know the elements. Mm-hmm. So those kind of barriers have to get broken down. Um, I talk about the fact that what makes a garden... Beautiful And and even what makes it healthy, like in terms of, you know, like soil health is that you have different species that look different from each other and need different conditions to thrive um, rather than creating, you know, a uniformity. Right. Know, unless we're talking about like a lavender field or something, I guess, in which case <laughs> right. everything is the same. But I was thinking of more, you know, like a right. wildflower garden. Um, and that's obviously a radical departure in, I would like to see, and this would be experimental, obviously, but if it were up to me, like if somebody said high school can be however you design it, Mm -hmm. number one, I wouldn't make it mandatory. And I understand that means a lot of kids wouldn't graduate from high school for a period of time. Right. But this is a (laughs) long-term, this is a long-term vision. But I think you almost have to do away with that part of it in order to gain a lot of things in other ways. Um, because we spend a lot of time just forcing kids to stay somewhere that they don't want to stay. And Mm -hmm. time is a limited resource, right? So the time and energy that we're spending doing that, we're not spending helping students open their minds or, or, you know, explore new territory and stuff like that.
0: Well, and we, I mean, that's another way of, I mean, to, to reframe some things too. Like we could work harder to create an environment that they want to be right. in, instead of yeah. saying, no, we're going to force you to be here. And right. not, I mean, again, that's prison. Right, right. exactly. Right. <laughs> Here's a place you have to be. Right. Um, and it's not going to be very pleasant for you. Right, so.
1: or for anybody else. I mean, right. the problem is that once all the resources get directed toward trying to control the kids who don't want to be there in the first place, you, there's no time to even attend to the kids who might want to learn something. Right.
0: Um, So you talked about the application here, and I'm diverging a little bit, but do do you use this in your life? Like when you think about who you are and your work life, do you ever, if you want to approach something differently, do you ever think about the metaphor you're using for it?
1: You know, I hmm, probably not that explicitly, but I but I should. And I mean, I think I think we all should. Right. I think that I tend to think metaphorically about most things just because mm-hmm. I'm an English teacher, but I probably don't apply like the um, the discipline or the methodology as much to my own right. life as I do to something that I'm studying. Like right. I've, I've done this with, with other things besides school. Um, one of... Another thing I spent analyzing for quite a long time in the same way was uh, mandatory parenting classes that divorcing parents have to take. Um, And that is a thing in Ohio. I don't know if it's a thing in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting from a metaphorical standpoint. That could be a different podcast, (laughs) but... um, I have done it more with things like that than I have okay. with my day-to-day existence. But I probably okay. should do it more with my day-to-day so, existence. And I'm going to now.
0: All right. Wow. All That's right. what I'm getting out of Yay. this
1: podcast. Good. Yeah. So wait.
0: I have to unpack. So wait. In Ohio, if mm-hmm. you're getting divorced, mm-hmm. you have to go to a... You have
1: to take parenting classes. Really? Mm-hmm. Both, both? Both parties? Yeah, both parties. I have
0: to take parenting classes. Yeah. But you don't... When you're... Married,
1: <laughs> you, right? You don't have to to get married,
0: married or to to have kids. So I guess I'm, right, yeah.
1: Nor do you know if somebody, for instance, gets widowed, oh. you know, they don't have to take a class on how to be a good single parent. Huh. So it, it it's somewhat punitive.
0: Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm totally unfamiliar with that.
1: I yeah. I was I'm, I was too until I went through it, and and I was kind of. I mean, which granted, you know, I was personally like entangled in that situation too because I was there in a mandatory <laughs> capacity right. but like the researcher and rhetorician in me too was watching this thinking I like this is a bizarre huh. um, experience for everyone right we could talk more about yeah, that no, another I'm... time it, <laughs> yes level yeah levels of weirdness <laughs> that I could not have conjured
0: huh. well so, this is one of the places where I think our I don't know if I, in my case I'd call it an expertise, but I, I'll just use that word because I can't think of a better one. Mm-hmm. But where they converge is that. So as a as a counseling psychologist, we spend, a, or at least I was trained to spend a lot of time thinking about the metaphors mm-hmm. people use in their relationships, how they describe themselves. Yeah. And so that kind of gets to that question about the degree to which we use this in our lives, right. you know, that, that thinking about, okay, so who, how do I see myself in the world mm-hmm. from a big picture perspective? And then how does that inform my my language and how I think and and all that is something that I'm, I'm really intrigued by. Yeah. Um, and I and I think in some ways it, it's gotten even sort of meatier for me, um, which was an interesting choice of portrait Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. a lot of reasons <laughs> um, with social media, because so much of it informs also how you pitch yourself to the yes, world right. in, a, in this you know, public space. Yeah. Very, very cool. Well, I want to, as we finish up, I want to mention and talk a little bit about the cause effect article you just wrote Um, because it's, it's related. But before we get there, do you have anything you want to add related to the the talk?
1: No, I don't think so. Other than just to to go back to what you said just a minute ago, how you look at how the, you know, the metaphors that define, for instance, a relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. affect our behavior. I I think they really affect everything. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of research on Different metaphors people have for marriage. So, mm-hmm. like some people look at a marriage as um, almost like a financial agreement, right? right? Which, which sounds cold and calculating. But it isn't really like in a lot of ways it's very practical and, and right. actually in support of people staying together mm. long term because people look at things like time as an investment so I put right. so much of my life into this relationship and you mm. know that therefore means it's it's worth um, trying to save right. whereas you know another one is is love is, is love is war is a primary metaphor where right. you know like. Being the one who always gets what they want in the relationship becomes the goal, whether people realize it or not, and that's not as sustainable. Right. And there's a whole bunch of them. There's like a whole list of um, primary metaphors for, for marriage or love
0: mm.
1: that create radically different real world um, well, you experiences. you
0: use two for love in the you know, one is magic. Yeah. The other one is I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't remember the it, other
1: one I used. To. Medical. Patient. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, this is, is a healthy right? relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Their relationship is on the mend, or, you know, this is a sick, twisted relationship. Yeah. Right. Where the relationship itself is like a patient that's either healthy or, or ill. Or not. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Do people, like, do they? Do we shift from metaphor to other metaphor? Like, do you, can you move from a yeah, absolutely. magic to sickly? something
1: you can for sure and that's that's what's powerful about primary metaphors is that you can intentionally decide to adopt another Mm -hmm. one which is what i'm suggesting we can do at schools but i think it also happens more tacitly right you you might um you know enter into a relationship where you kind of go in swinging and then realize over time this person's Mm -hmm. actually just being really kind to me all the time right and then that you know i that's kind of a reflective thing, right? Um, which I've definitely seen happen in classrooms but I think happens in all kinds of relationships.
0: You know, it's, it's funny. So to tie this back to anger a little bit, so I've mentioned before on in the, in the show and elsewhere that I, I was raised by a very angry father okay. and, um, uh, and he, part of what I saw is he, he actually, he wasn't, uh, typically, I should say like hostile to me. Uh-huh. However, um, he approached like the vast majority of service workers with like this combative perspective, like, you know, whether it was a waiter or a gas station attendant or something like that with this kind of aggressive right out of the gate, you know, start for a long time. And I think that I, I picked up on that. and that, Well, that
1: always comes from somewhere, right? right? That's learned behavior. Right. Yeah.
0: And and so I think, like, I sort of, for a long time, and it may have been, frankly, throughout my, like, childhood, like, I kind of went into those situations exp- as though I was interacting with the enemy, you know. Right, it's like yeah. this is a person who wants to keep me from getting what I want, which is a weird way of looking at a quote unquote service provider. Right, <laughs> right, right. right, right. You right. know, but I would, I think that it, and it, it wasn't, you know, in high school I had all those jobs, and yeah. I think that's when it, I, started to sort of shift this in my mind and think that's how like, to, wait, this, yeah, that's not what,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah.
0: Like the person at the video store, they just want to. Well, ultimately, I don't think they care if I get the movie or not. But right. if I want a movie, they want to help get <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, <it. laughs>
1: they have no incentive to keep the movie from no. you. Right. Right. So, yeah.
0: but it, it is a, you know, so you see how, because I do think sometimes when I think about relationships, and we've been talking about romantic relationships, yeah. but just relationships with colleagues or friendly, relationships with administrators, relationships mm-hmm. with anyone, can be impacted by sort of the metaphor we use for for those relationships. Yeah, definitely. And I
1: found the most powerful tactic for um, building relationships with high schoolers who come in inherently mm-hmm. angry. And, and combative. I mean, mm-hmm. with me, with everybody. And it's hard to do, but if you can continue to be kind to someone who's not being kind to you over time, mm-hmm. it. There will usually be a turn. Mm-hmm. Not, not all the time. I mean, there are students who've had such horrible experiences that, right. you know, that's not going to happen, or at least not in the space of that year. But I, I would say 90% of the time it did. <laughs> so, that's what you're really doing is modeling a different primary right. metaphor without making it explicit. But because metaphors, and especially primary metaphors, are so intuitive, we can affect shifts without ever saying that that's what we're doing.
0: Right. That is fascinating stuff. Anything else before we talk just quickly about the cause effect? No, I don't think so. So tell people, you wrote this great article and I so, so appreciate it for causeeffect.org mm-hmm. um, about uh, something different, but the same. Yeah, uh, related. And um, that is about essentially how to know when someone's lying to you. So, yeah. So tell people more about this and, and what you were doing.
1: Okay, so I, um, before I came to UWGB, taught at... A university that really focused on criminal justice programs. That was kind of their claim to fame. And I co taught a seminar with a man who was former head of Secret Service for Bill Clinton for oh, all wow. eight years. Yeah.
0: So I didn't know this part. Okay. Yeah, he's this fascinating. Is cool. okay. Like I've had
1: him come in and talk um, to my students through video feed, and I want to do more of that. Oh, that's awesome. Because he's. Like, he was standing next to Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And I said, so I'm asking him, Pete is this guy's name. And I said, what did you think when he said that? And he said, I knew he was lying right then. And I said, why? And he said, because he used the word that. And what we know from forensic linguistics is that the word that is a distancing pronoun. We use it when we're trying to create distance. So he didn't want to use her name. Right. He wanted to, and this is all subconscious, right? Right. People don't do this intentionally. And it also shows that somebody as smart as Bill Clinton, and I've studied him a lot, and I'm actually like, I'm a Bill Clinton fan. I'll admit it right now. (laughs) He's a super bad liar, really bad at lying, Mm -hmm. because he gives these clues away. So, um, you know, like I would say, I'm holding my glasses now. Um, these are my glasses and I might point across the room and say those are your glasses so like pronoun switching is a big indicator of whether we want to be close to something or far away so anyway in these conversations with with um, Pete who was the Secret Service guy we started teaching a seminar on forensic linguistics um, focused on lie detection through grammatical formulation which is a process called statement validity analysis, which is used um, by Homeland Security. It's not admissible as court evidence here. It is in other countries, but it's a good like, tip off. Like, do I need to look closer at something? And there's just patterns we follow. Like, if I'm lying to you, I'm more likely to not use personal pronouns. I'll drop the I in mm. things. Like, instead of saying, I got up and had breakfast, I might say, got up, went for a bike ride, had a coke hmm. but you know there's no pronouns right. here so that's like an indicator and so there's there's many different grammatical clues this is totally right. separate from like handwriting analysis or body language analysis right. or you know which direction your eye looks when you're talking right. it's all grounded in the language
0: well and, and so i think the article you provide 10 yeah like, top like, 10 tips or yeah, something, something yeah. like that which yeah. is great so I would, i'll post that along with this too okay. uh, i'll mention um I, so there's a, I think there's actually a, it, it might not be a TED talk, but a TED, a, a TED ed talk. I okay. I think it was about kind of something similar. And they mm-hmm. use the example of Lance Armstrong and that his, they compare his, well, they actually use Bill Clinton as well, but uh-huh. they use, they compare his denials uh-huh. to his, um, his when he finally came out and admitted it, and his yeah. denials are so convoluted. They're these long, right. you know, the um, trailing sentences that go on and on. Yeah. But when he says he did it, he basically says, "I did it,"
1: and that's totally typical. Yeah. yeah.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. The other
1: thing is non non denial denial. So when someone says, "I deny these charges," that's not the same as saying, "I didn't do it." Right. That's closer to yep. saying like. I wish I hadn't done that. Yep. I <laughs> but, think I caught
0: someone do that recently. I think it was Kraft. The uh, if that is his name, shoot the the owner of the Patriots when okay. he, um, I think he was arrested for uh, soliciting sex. And okay. the first thing they said is, "I deny these yeah, charges." Right, and it them.
1: probably turned out to be true. Right, right? I, usually, I believe it was. Usually so. does. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah.
0: Um, very, very interesting. Anything else before we finish up?
1: I don't think so. Huh?
0: This has been awesome. So that is going to do it for this episode special. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Jenny Young. You should all check out the talk. I'm going to post it with the show notes. As I said, you can find that on alltheragescience.com. Um, I will also post the cause and effect article. Can they? Are you on Twitter anywhere?
1: I have a Twitter account that you don't. That have. I sometimes remember okay. how to log into. But. <laughs> Well, I could post. I do know how to post things. Okay. Well, I just I can do that for people who you are. You can link to me. Is awesome. that what we're getting at? Sure. Okay. Or I will <laughs> if that's that. even the right <laughs> term. Yes. yes. <laughs> um,
0: no. I just, if, if case people wanted to know more about you, I like to give. Oh, a okay. But um, so uh until next time please follow us on facebook and twitter by following at psych and stuff or you can follow me on twitter at rycmart that's r-y-c-m-a-r-t go there for additional information about psychology ask questions or even suggest an episode and if you would i would love it if you would take some time to leave us a rating on apple Podcasts. it helps other people find the show i also want to thank our producer kate farley who does all the important things and our podcast artist kimberly Leese. I've said this before, but Kimberly just designed our really amazing Cannonball Podcast art. I love it, and I love working with people like Kimberly. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep being amazing.